0: Keep <laughs> me,
1: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture, I'm Robert Bounds. On this episode we're going for a spin through two very different cultural offerings. A cutting-edge theatrical presentation with breathtakingly beautiful music and a non-agenarian artist who's been part of or a stone's throw away from many of the artistic movements, creative circles and cultural moments of the past 70 years. This pick and mix presents diamonds and pearls from the current cultural world. So put your ears to it, give the bag a rustle and come with the Monocle on Culture team for a short tour. First we'll start at last week's opening of this year's iteration of the Manchester International Festival to focus on an art installation come virtual concert celebrating the music of the late great Ryuichi Sakamoto. For context, the audience enters an auditorium where a hush falls as we're handed mixed reality headsets. A red cube pulses in front of our eyes and then Sakamoto-san, captured by cameras in a state-of-the-art process just a couple of years before his death, shimmers into view to play just under an hour of his solo piano works, both famous and lesser known. Subtle effects wash over and under Sakamoto's likeness and the audience is invited to wander and explore the space. Or is it one? The work is named Kagami, Japanese for mirror, and it's enjoyed a double premiere at The Shed in New York and here in Manchester. This moving masterpiece, and it really, really is one, was staged by the US-based Tin Drum production company, which was founded by unique visionary in Todd Eckert, with whom I spoke after that first performance. Todd we've both just walked out of Kagame lucky to have a premiere here at the Manchester International Festival and the people that went in the sort of art fraternity that walked into the room some of them friendly with each other lots of hugs and slapping of backs everyone is instantly changed the minute they put their glasses on and after 50 minutes of that performance walking out my voice, I'm trying to keep my voice together not crack because this is a radio broadcast congratulations on a really beautiful piece of work in Kagame I wanted to ask you first Todd about settling on the overall mood of that 50 minute piece, how did you start with picking the tone of the piece
2: I mean ultimately Ryuichi had a very very specific way of hearing the world And as a result, he informed how we hear ourselves. So I chose very little. In many ways, the songs and his performance of those songs informed what the tone should be. So all of the choices that were made in the room, whether it's lighting or markings on the floor the induction room that you walk through everything has a very practical reason to be there and many of the elements may look cosmetic some of them may look like deep aesthetic choices and i suppose there's a response to any need so there's some of that but for the most part it was very practical And there's a real, the music speaks for itself, and and as you say,
1: sort of sets the tone and sets the, I guess, some of the parameters of some of the visuals that viewers see. What about the set list? Was that something because there's well-known pieces like Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, less well-known pieces, and I understand a piece that's never been played before in front of an audience, as it were, in this case, I suppose, Um, What about the set list? How long was that sort of set in stone by Sakamoto-san?
2: Ryuichi and I were talking about it back and forth for a while, and I think I surprised him because I requested songs that he said that he had even forgotten about or or were not at the forefront of his mind. So, for example, my desire to start off with Before Long, which is a song from Neo Geo, which I think is from 1988, that was not on his original list. But to me, that was always our opening because there's something slow and patient and... It allows an audience to build a sense of trust in something that they don't otherwise know. We recorded songs that were not in this final version. So I actually have another seven songs that we may release someday, I don't know. But The, uh, the Seed and the Sower, for example, from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, from that original score... That was directly informed by something that Ryoichi did on the BTTB tour 20-something years ago. And then, of course, the last song is BB. And that was his response to my asking him in the August before we recorded for something that no one had ever heard before. So I, I like the idea that like if you think about a normal gig... The idea of an encore is either scripted and therefore kind of artificial or a genuine response to the energy of the room. But either way, it's a a kind of a a moment of revelation, hopefully a a bit of surprise. And by having a song that is literally ungoogleable as the conclusion of our show, hopefully that energy and that joy and surprise is perpetuated.
1: Yeah, that non-Google-ability of much of this show is part and parcel of it, I suppose, and quite key to everyone's enjoyment, I think, of that, that it's not... We haven't seen any imagery from it. We probably won't. Um, it's an incredible thing. And on that note, in, in terms of its lack of obviousness, obviously we've seen a very visual thing. You and your team have worked exceptionally hard to put these visuals in front of our eyes, subtle as they are. And it struck me as something that is very visual, but actually everyone in the room is absolutely concentrating on the music in the way that is rare in in 2023 to listen to 50 minutes of music uninterrupted. Those visuals supported that hugely. Was that, I mean, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but was that part of the reason for doing it to have to create this moment of stillness simply to enjoy the music?
2: So for me, the, the show itself is meant to fulfill many different needs. And Ryuichi and I were talking about it in February of 2020 in my apartment in New York about the idea that if you look at a film, a, a traditional film of a concert, then you're actually seeing what is ultimately an artifact of something that you weren't there for. Where with this medium, despite the fact that nobody had ever done a musical performance in the medium, um, if we got it right, then we could create something that was energetically connective in a way that you would feel that it was an event in which you were participating by virtue of your agency or your the determinism that you would affect on where you are in the room, sitting, standing, sitting, whatever. And, and then that energetic connection would mean that your relationship with Ryuichi as an artist would be perpetuated whether he was in the room or not. And there was this moment where we were talking about it and, and I looked at him and I said, honestly, I, the show that I want to make is for a connection between you and an audience that hasn't even been born yet. And he went, wow and i think that was the moment that we were really making this show
1: and both of you had such deep connections you obviously have both both have deep connections to music and to film and we're in manchester you produced control amazing movie and sakamoto obviously provided soundtracks for multiple films and was very conversant with soundtracking films and writing for them did you kind of meet on in the middle on that as people Fluent in music and film, and then working on such a visual thing as this, did what did both of you bring to the kind of visual side of it?
2: I guess so. The visual side of it was something that that happened in isolation. I I wish Ryuichi could have contributed more, but Narika Sora, who is his wife and manager, but a very very strong visual presence could have been more involved, but Ryuichi, by the time we got to the art, Ryuichi was was in the hospital very, very unwell. And the other part of it, this will sound hilarious, but because nobody had ever done anything on this scale in this medium, and we had to invent the technology in order to invent the show... We didn't know how the capture of Ryuichi, so that dimensional form that feels like it's in the room, how it would relate to different concepts for the presentation, some of which would be very, very grand, like The Last Emperor, or very minute, like The Leaves in Muji. And so the funny thing about it was, graphically speaking, we had to turn over the possibilities because some of the ideas that we had just didn't work. So, for example, there there was a big opening in before long, which involved the the lighting of his face and a light pulling back and a kind of reveal of the space. and it just never worked. And so, I remember it was a couple of days before we were finishing our tests in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, before we moved the show to New York. And I was speaking to Narika, and, and I told her that unfortunately I was Wong kar it. And what I, what I meant by that was, do you know the story from In the Mood for Love when he was premiering it at Cannes? So it's the night before he's supposed to premiere it and he's still cutting it on a flatbed in the Majestic across the street. And we kind of did the digital equivalent to that because I was changing elements of this until the very last minute before we pushed the build to all of the devices and actually went live. I think
1: one car Waing it is a new. Uh, we're going we're to help that to enter the lexicon, the filmmaking, winging it lexicon. <laughs> <laughs> and talking of the visuals, Todd, they're beautiful, elegant and very sparing. I think the temptation might be, not with Sakamoto's music perhaps, but to kind of go overboard because you can do anything, you can go anywhere. What was the conversations that you had or simply your kind of art direction or creative direction or attitude to how much to put in front of people's eyes?
2: Um, A lot of it came from trying. So you can have something like Andada, which is informed by the black lines in Mondrian and the colors on the inside of it, and the idea that people will be... Coerced into using their agency, which they're not used to using in a recorded medium, to the, um, the particles that are flowing like water that are uh, the, the basis of Eoneco no Torso, uh, and that came from watching the sun glint off of waves in Southeast Asia, to Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence was by far the hardest Because it's arguably the most perfect melody anybody ever wrote. And you can listen to it thousands and thousands of times, as I have since 1983. But you will always hear something new in it. And so how do you take something that legendary and actually create any sort of visual worthy of it that's not just, you know, like drapes on on a perfect house? And so that was one, this is kind of a dumb story, but I was, I was running to it. And I run in the mornings. And from my apartment, I run across the, the Brooklyn Bridge and then back of the Manhattan Bridge down Canal Street. And so I was doing that with that song on a loop for like a whole week. Then it was seven hours, sketched out what that would be and the idea of dimensions going up, but also out and also down. And every song was a little bit like that. It's just that one was the most involved. I suppose there's, don't take this the
1: wrong way, but there's quite a lot of responsibility, isn't there, of putting well, visuals yeah, yeah, to yeah, this yeah, yeah. music and a uh, uh, track such as that, which, as you said, is sort of perfect. It's, its <laughs> I don't want to say no pressure, but, I mean, it's its its tough to know how much to
2: put on the screen, I it suppose. Was, yeah. it, was, it was insane pressure. And, and you know, it you just kind of crushed by it sometimes, you're like, God, what do I do? And hopefully it does come across as uh, worthy of the songs that inspired it.
1: That was Todd Eckert, founder of Tindrum. Now, Kagami has just finished its runs in New York and Manchester on the 9th of July, but its next runs are at the Sydney Opera House, no less, and the Big Ears Festival in Knoxville, Tennessee. So do go and see those. And finally, Roddy Maud roxby has led a life in full colour. As a painter, he's crossed paths with an impressive Rolodex of the 20th century's most celebrated artist, the likes of Peter Blake, Pauline Botti, and David Hockney. He also enjoyed a life treading the boards, including as a founding member of the Royal Court Theatre in London and as the voice of Edgar Balthazar, the butler in Disney's Aristocats. I was delighted to be joined in the studio by Roddy to discuss a new show that mixes his old and new artworks, as well as some of the tales from his past and the hijinks he enjoyed at the Royal College of Art. Roddy, it's yes. wonderful to have you on the programme. Thank you very much for coming into Studio Two here at Midori House today. Thank you. And it would be great to, to kick off talking about these two, these two new shows in London. Yes. How does it feel to see them installed, to see that work, the product of... Some of it the product of a long time, some of it fresh stuff... Yeah, that's right. ..hanging and, and out and about in public life once yes. again.
0: I've got two Alices in my life, an Alice wife and an Alice daughter from a previous marriage. And the Alice wife got together a lot of work, which is on very thin paper, and succeeded in clipping it onto card because in the gallery we had to press the work against the wall not to have any nails or hangings. Okay, And so there there was that to think of. And then Alice, my daughter... She's curated exhibitions, and she had a theme. So she was looking for work that fitted the theme. Okay. And when I came in to see the exhibition, practically none of the work that, at least my wife, had got together was included. <laughs> and that was OK, and it looked good and everything. And then over the next night, by the next morning... Alice, the wife, recognised that I was worrying about something. And it was, didn't they like the other work? And it wasn't that they didn't like it, it was that it didn't fit. Right, the curatorial idea. Yes, and that it was like another set of my work. So that was how it came came out.
1: Well, I like it. I like that you don't have to play one one Alice off against the other there. Only slowly, politically. Yeah,
0: they get on well. (laughs)
1: Good.
0: And the theme that my daughter chose Mm. was um, where I've worked over other people's work or included work that's got something already printed on it. And during the uh, virus, I started working a lot on cardboard boxes that had got an image already printed on them. Mm -hmm. And I cut the card and then started making a whole series. So this is
1: a sort of grand pop art tradition of which you were one of the progenitors back in the day, weren't
0: you? Yes, I have one painting in the exhibition Mm. which was in an exhibition which was going to... I can't remember now, it was in Nottingham or somewhere, mm-hmm. and it was the first time they printed it in a newspaper article and put pop art above it. And for us, it was the first time that we'd heard the that title used for our work. And there was some question of whether we liked it or not. And we were, I was particularly interested in the scale of posters mm-hmm. and the, for me, the very often advertisements had a large smiling blonde woman's face and then the can of beans whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. And so I took that as something to use. And I had a friend at the, uh, the college who wanted me to go in and when we were supposed to be doing life paintings to just do a large blonde woman's <laughs> smiling face. And so I did that and then it led to other paintings. So two of them are in the exhibition which were done that long ago.
1: Which one, mm. is wonderful. It must be sort of wonderful to have that sort of back to the future idea yes, through your right. through your work that's and through right. your long career. Rather. Yes, yeah. Yes. And what about that? When that terminology was coined for some of the work that you were making, yes, back in what the mid fifties, late fifties, late fifties, late fifties. Yeah, what what was your feeling about that? To be kind of art, artistic movements. They're useful umbrellas to sell things sometimes, but yes. they could be constricting for the artist. That's right. That no,
0: I, I think that I resisted it. And um, I was a, I was a, I was working as an actor, mm. and I knew the director of a show that did the show with Brunovsky, where he interviewed people. And Brunovsky wanted to interview Ron Kitai. Mm-hmm. And Ron Kitai I knew because he he was at the college with me. And so they took me along too. And Brunovsky, one of the first questions he asked Ron Kitai was, what, what what is this pop art and and Ron Kit I said you better ask Roddy <laughs> and I was looking him no don't ask me anything because yeah we both would have thought we're uncertain whether it limits how people look at our work or whether it's a, a, a name that we can ride with. Him. Yeah, yes. no,
1: it's it's fascinating stuff. Yes. and we'll come back to to the work that's hanging here in London yes. in a minute. But on on that, this is the Royal College of Art in the nineteen fifties. Yes, not only your own storied name amongst many many there, Peter Blake and and that's and, right, and and all sorts, um, Hockney. Pauline yes. Botie, I mean, and That's amazing, right. amazing pool of talent there.
0: But those three what names, the,
1: yeah. What was the what was the atmosphere like in the Royal College at that, that um, period? I
0: enjoyed it terrifically, mm. and uh, Pauline Bautier, mm. uh w- I had already got established to run a theatre group, and mm-hmm. we did shows which are interminable, and Derek <laughs> Bocher was one of the players, yeah. and he later wrote about the possibility that it was the first indication that painters were going to do performance art because sometimes the people came wanted to do something which certainly wouldn't get a look in in a regular theater and yet was for us curious and interesting and we let them come on in and someone else recently asked me did I audition Pauline (laughs) Boaty no 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 the other way I say come on board yeah and she was very um, uh, she became our star really and Peter Blake was in the year ahead of me, we would have been about the same age, maybe may have been older than Peter. And I was in an exhibition with him and Ivor Abrams, who used glass, melted glass, which now I'm doing melted things with melted glass. Yeah. And it was the first show that Peter Blake had ever had, which I hadn't realized till now. And it was the tradition when you finished an exhibition that you'd swap a painting with each other. Yeah. And I have a little painting which is in the exhibition which Peter Blake wanted. And no, yeah, that one was too close to my heart, I said, no. Off and I never got a Peter Blake, so Damn I missed it. out. <laughs> so I missed um, out. It's a
1: wonderful time. And it feels like there are, we always think that that period, we are taught to think perhaps that that period was stuffy and constricted. It seems like the art being made and the, the atmosphere in the college, you going between being... A stage actor to a performance artist right. to a painter to, 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 to a right. multi, multi media right. artist. That's right. You saw very few boundaries, it seems.
0: No. And Francis Bacon was uh, given a, a studio with the idea that he, we could go in and see his work and he would look at our work. And he, he delighted in us and would say, Come on in. And then I would be with him and he'd say, I'm going to start painting now, but don't stop talking. Keep right. talking, yeah. and as if I tried, on his hand would come around to wave me to keep on talking, <laughs> and then I said, I said, oh, there's a little film, and I say in the film that the thing I could give the archivist was that when he was painting, he cleaned his brush in the crook of his arm, so he took the oil paint off and took more colour, and in the, the crook of his arm was just solid with paint, and big woolly sweater, yeah. and then you, I found in the paintings, you can see little wisps of woolly's paint, it, woolly's parts of his jumper in the paintings. I love these it's a little
1: serendipity that you find in these priceless paintings.
0: And at the end of the term that he was there, two or three of us were told, clean out his studio. You can keep anything you find because you'll find brushes and paints and everything. He left the place in a total mess. And um, just clean the whole place out. That's what we want. And while we were cleaning out, we found a canvas rolled up. Oh, nice. And one person said, Well, I found that. I think I. Was, no, no, no. I think it's us. And then eventually we said, we, we, we ought to let the college know. We can't just take it. And the college put it up in the, the, the staff room. Mm-hmm. And then I was told, Now. That they they sold it and they it paid for the rebuilding of a whole wing of the of the Royal College. <laughs> so we lost a great deal by not just being quiet and walking out the door. You
1: could have just whistled and walked. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> but you chose the more noble option. We, yes, for the future of the, sort of the Royal yes, College of yes, Art, yes. it'll thank you one yes, day somehow. Yes, yes. Do you have a kind of? sort of Valhalla sort of perfect idea of an artist studio in your mind? Or do you just no, Can you work anywhere?
0: I work anywhere. Mm. And I was one of five children. Whenever it rained we all were together if we if we've gone on holiday we always took drawing books mm. and we all looked at each other's drawings. And I got to do children's books when I was thirteen or fourteen because a publisher saw my work in a we used to send in our work to a Royal Drawing Society mm-hmm. and he saw them there and then he took me up and I got to Two, 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 two children's books, which annoyed the staff. The staff of schools didn't like the fact that you were.
1: Well, it's earning unheard of money. that a child would make <laughs> no, children's books. They
0: didn't like it. They didn't like it. No. <laughs> they thought they should be doing yes, it. Yes. That's
1: incredible. There's a strange idea that we feel that children's books should be written by people that are at least over 30.
0: Yeah, exactly. A parent's age, yeah, yes, perhaps, yes, you exactly. might say, right? Yes, exactly. Why
1: is that, I wonder? It seems strange, doesn't
2: it?
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there have been other books. Through years, my children, which have been successful, yeah, and I, I mine also. I went to Australia when I was seventeen, and in Australia, I took the character that I'd had in my in my book, uh, was an English frog, to meet the Australian animals and so on. Mm. And uh, an old uh, American pilot who'd been in two wars, who knew Walt Disney, came and said he was with Walt Disney when Walt Disney had my book in his hand, and he had had conversations with with someone that I knew who used to lie a great deal and exaggerate. And he picked up that there was something... Fairy tales are in the air. Yes. And he said, "Uh, look look at this. Uh, It's purports to be by a child, but it could be a con. And so that was why... He never went through. And at the time, I was told he he was interested. And my child said, well, will he alter my frog? And they said, yeah, he will. He'll do his own. I said, oh, I don't want that. So (laughs) (laughs) I would have had words with him if if he'd been around. But Disney, you turned up later in your life. Yes, I got into The Aristocats. And that was the last film where he uh, saw it as a project, but Mm. then died. Right. And the uh, the man who was doing the... the, uh, There were many artists doing the villain, Mm -hmm. and they all would have different people who they wanted to employ for the voice, and luckily I was chosen by someone who wanted an English voice, a butler with an English voice in Mm -hmm. France, and so I got the part.
1: (laughs) There's all... <laughs> we don't have, sadly, time to go into the, uh, the, the ever-present casting of Brits as villains, especially no, no, in no. Disney, in Disney cartoons. It's strange, yes, isn't it? Yes. It's a strange yes. one. Anyway, so much to talk about. I'm sorry that uh, time was short, but thank you for talking. Thank so much. you. The great Roddy Maud Roxby there and his exhibition, Associative Drifts, is on at Posk Gallery in London until the 17th of July. And you can find out more about Roddy at roddymaudroxby.com. And that is all for this week. My thanks to Roddy and also to Tin Drums' Todd Eckert. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu. And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in.